I would like, if I may, take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents, a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. We had a great show for you this week, <laughs> even if it was a little bit delayed. Let me try to fix this camera a little bit here. This week, um, I'm the Devil's Advocate. I'm going to be talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I believe it's a fantastic tool to be used in lesser magic on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, in the Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking about women and porn addiction. How it's been sprouting up and coming in for the past two years more and more. I'm also going to be talking about an article on U.S. czars, where they came from, why they were created, when they were created, um, and the idea behind them, why people don't like them, and more. And then in Creature Feature, I'm going to be talking about an album from a fellow Satanist, uh, Ceremo, I guess, 3, or... Um, um, anyway, it's a fantastic album, ambient music, um, really great, and I'll talk about that for a little bit. And hopefully I'm going to be interviewing him um, for next week's Creature Feature on some additional pieces that uh, he's working on. So look forward to that. Uh, this week has been really, really great. Um, more so than usual because I've been on vacation. I only get uh, two weeks out of the year vacation, so when I am afforded the opportunity, I really grab hold and run. Um, this, w this, this time... Um, it also coincided with uh, my wife's birthday, and so we um, sort of celebrated that uh, as a family. Also, we went down to Goblin Valley, and if you've never been to Goblin Valley, it's um, a state park in Utah, southern Utah, and essentially it's in the middle of a desert. It's got the traditional sort of Utah rock, um, Grand Canyon-type rock formations rising out of just flat desert, but it has these uh, rock formations that are uh, sort of humanoid in shape, um, you know, large and, and bulky and stuff, and so people, you know, stumbling across it, saw them and thought, hey, you know, those kind of look like goblins, so that you know, took the name Goblin Valley. It's actually a really great place for kids um, and people who just sort of like hiking and stuff, and that's certainly our family. So we went there, we had a really great time, and after that I went to my brother's house, and uh, we had dinner there, and it was nice catching up with him and talking with his family and, and kids and everything. So, you know, it was just a really relaxing uh, weekend, and then, you know, last night I spent most of the night um, bottling, brewing, and getting my ass kicked in Call of Duty. So, you know, it's, it's great hanging out with friends and drinking and stuff, and I, I finally had a chance to try out my pilgrim that I've been sitting on for three weeks not wanting to touch, and it is just fantastic. This is the second time I brewed that, that Pilsner, and it has never let us down in flavor. Um, it is always really, really good. So if you haven't tried a Pilsner yet, I suggest you go try it if you're a beer drinker. And even if you're not, it's, it's worth trying. You should try everything once, right? All right, so um, let's go ahead and move on into uh, the Devil's Advocate, shall we? Oh, 
Uh, as with every devil's advocate, I would like to preface this by saying I'm a member of the Church of Satan. I am a Satanist, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Um, and one may ask themselves, why is he talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the Satanic segment of the show? Um, well, there's a pretty clear answer to that, and it should be fairly obvious um, if you've learned anything about it in school, which really I would hope that you had. I just sort of want to touch on it again and um, sort of, you know, pull the tool out of your tool bag, um, wipe it clean uh, so you can put it back and, and put it to better use next time. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, uh, well, it was sort of um, a real shift. When it was written um, by uh, Abraham Maslow, uh, it was first put out, oh, let's see, it was uh, 1943 in um, his paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, and then later he also put it in uh, Motivation and Personality. So it was a shift because up to that point, whenever you discuss psychology, it was about what was wrong with people, and um, the hierarchy of needs sort of provided um, you know, sort of building blocks on how to improve one's life or understand how to have a healthy life. It has, you know, in all fairness, not everyone agrees with uh, its notions and, and certainly the order in which it's, it's delivered because, um, you know, some of it's really just vague notions. Um, but, you know, whenever it comes to psychology and, and human behavior, repetition is the only, the only true way to, uh, I guess it would be both mass exhibition of behavior, repeat behavior. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you know, because so many people are so different in so many different ways, this is a, a really great building block to sort of use uh, when you're trying to practice lesser magic on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and it's, it's very helpful for anyone that wants to exhibit any influence over anyone else. Um, and it's really sort of just important. You may not agree with um, the order or the idea of it. Well, how about I just shut the fuck up and start talking about what it is. So, as I said before, it is a um, building block of types of needs. And I'm actually on uh, psychologyabout.com uh, talking about this. So, it's most often displayed... Well, let me, let me sort of back up for a second. This hierarchy suggests uh, that people are motivated to fulfill basic needs before moving on to other needs. And I'm just going to go ahead and start talking about the needs. So the first need, which would be sort of the bottom building block of this uh, pyramid, as it's often seen, is physiological needs. And this is pretty obvious because, you know, as children, the first thing we need to survive, because survival is more important than building your, your individuality and personality at that point, at the most basic of human states, um, is uh, obviously water, air, food, and sleep. Now, you absolutely have to have those. You start taking one out of the equation, and uh, you know your your physiological um, 
body starts uh, becoming quite abnormal in, in various different ways. Um, so, okay, so that's the basic. Physiological needs, food, water, air, sleep, obvious. The second need, security. Now, this is all building up to self-actualization. Um, so keep that in mind as we're sort of going on to this. And then I'll talk about what he defines self-actualization as as well. So the second one above physiological needs is security needs. And so these are going to be uh, steady employment, health insurance, safe neighborhoods, uh, shelter from the environment. If you know you have a safe place to rest your head, you're more likely to be able to focus on other parts of your life, which are, you know, slowly coming up on this pyramid's um, uh, next steps here. So after you have your physiological needs taken care of, your security needs are taken care of, you start focusing on social needs. And these next two, you know, they can go in either order. Um, he lists it as social first, um, and, and this is where individuality really steps in and is going to, you know, customize this list as necessary. Um, but for our purposes here, I'm just going to go about it in the order presented. Uh, social needs is uh, relationships, um, such as family or romantic. Um, just friends, social uh, interactions, communities, um, religions. You know, people will tend to identify themselves or want to identify themselves, excuse me, with a specific group after they've, uh, you know, defined safety and, and basic needs, um, after they've, uh, you know, had those needs met. Uh, esteem needs is next, and uh, esteem needs are, uh, you know, needs that reflect on uh, their self-esteem, personal worth, uh, social recognition, personal accomplishment. Um, and some may, and, and certainly I think that esteem needs might actually be before social needs because without self-worth or without some form of individual recognition of accomplishment, you're less likely to go out into a social environment and try to interact. If you have nothing to say, why would you go out there? Um, so, you know, that's just, esteem needs is the next step. And at the very top, it's self-actualization. I'm sorry, self-actualizing needs. Uh, this is the highest level of the hierarchy of needs. Uh, people are self-aware. They're concerned with personal growth. They're less concerned with the opinion of others and interested in fulfilling their potential. And this is where most Satanists <laughs> are going to find themselves, uh, I would like to think. Um, what exactly is self-actualization? Well, um, Abraham Maslow quotes it like this, quote, What a man can be, he must be. This need we may call self-actualization. It refers to the desire for self-fulfillment, namely to the tendency for him to become actualized in what he is potentially. This tendency might be phrased as the desire to become more and more what one is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. So the idea behind that is that that is the healthiest state of a human being, to be a self-actualizing human being, to truly be your potential of what you could be. And this is, or this can be a little bit difficult, um, because personally, I don't think everyone has the same potential. I, I genuinely think people have uh, degrees of capacity of thought and action in varying uh, fields, you know, just anything like that where 
some people are, are quite better at it because it interests them more, um, and they just have a natural affinity for it because it may just come easier to them. They, they have an inert capacity that exceeds other people's. So I think that's going to sort of also define what self-actualizing is. But that can also be used as a tool to sort of say, well, I'm not supposed to be good at this, so I'm just not going to try. Well, fuck that. If, if it's something you're interested in, certainly pursue it. If you're not interested in it, you know, th there's no need for it. But to strive at this point, at least as Abraham Maslow um, understands it, is to be a true, healthy human being. And on that point, I wholeheartedly agree. I think I think continually developing oneself is incredibly important, not just for you, but for the society in which you live. Uh, it benefits those that you hold around you, your loved ones, your friends, the, the communities in which you um, partake in, you know, you're actually a part of, uh, be it memberships or religions or whatever. Okay, so there are certain characteristics of actualized peoples as he understands it, or as he defines it. Um, those are acceptance and realism. I think that's pretty important. If you're a, a healthy human being, you have to sort of see the world around you realistically, understanding that there are rational limits to things. There are bounds of nature that you can't go, go across. And acceptance that, you know, sometimes you just have to deal with things as they are. You know, sometimes you just can't change them. Um, another is problem centering. Self-actualized individuals are concerned with solving problems outside of themselves, including helping others and finding solutions uh, to problems in the external world. This is a really personalized thing, I think. Um, I, you know, it's not like this carte blanche, oh, well, you're a self-actualized individual, well, you're going to be a philanthropist, or you're going to go out and donate time in Haiti after an earthquake or something. You know, that's a very personal thing. If that's what you want to do, more power to you. But it's certainly not like a, a checkbox that you have to do. Uh, spontaneity, self-actualized people are spontaneous in their thoughts and behaviors. Um, and aut autonomy and solitude, um, self-actualized people, uh, they have a need for independence and privacy. Uh, continued freshness of appreciation. So you tend to see the world um, as a continuing experience rather than just a stale uh, moment that you've had before. So if you're going on a hike and you see a view in a different perspective or the same perspective, you still appreciate it uh, for what it is. Um, and, and the majesty that it, it really commands upon seeing it. You you go out of your way, whether it's a fine meal that you have or uh, a, a piece of fruit or a glass of wine, um, a particular lover. You really sort of cherish that and appreciate it more than, um, you know, people just trying to get by and, you know, keeping their heads down in the sand and just trudging through life. Uh, you've actually gotten to the point where you can understand how to do that. Um, Let's see, uh, peak experiences, um, moments of intense joy, wonder, awe, and ecstasy. Uh, some people do this through uh, ritual, greater, greater magic. Some people do this through uh, just individual personal relationships or, or, or exhibitions, uh, you know, for themselves. Um, all of this together, you know, as I said before, not everyone agrees with it. Um, I think it's a very useful tool, and it's served me well. Um, sort of understanding this um, in my personal relationships that I've had. So if it helps you, fantastic. If it doesn't, meh, what can you do? 
Um, anyway, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, look it up. Um, it, it's literally anywhere you look for psychology, it's going to be there. Let's go ahead and move over to uh, Infernal Informant. Lordy is of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the Infernal Informant. Alright, this week I'm going to be talking about, uh, first... The Constitution doesn't mention czars. This is uh, by George P. Schultz, who actually um, was the former Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Treasury, and Secretary of State, and is a fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. Um, it appeared in the Wall Street Journal on uh, the 11th of April, 2011. Okay, so... Um, it opens up as this, a pattern of governance has emerged in Washington that departs substantially from the envisaged in our Constitution. Under our basic concept of governance, one, a president and vice president are elected, and two, the departments of government are staffed by constitutional officers, including secretaries, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, pardon, and others who are nominated by the president and confirmed for service by the con consent of the Senate. They are publicly accountable and may be called to testify under oath about their activities. He continues, over time, this form of governance has changed. Presidents sometimes assume <clears throat> that the bureaucracy will try to capture a secretary and his or her immediate staff so that they will develop a departmental rather than a White House point of view. So presidents will name someone in the White House to oversee the department and keep a tight rein in on its activities. In national security and foreign policy, the National Security Council was established after World War II um, as late as 1961 under President Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, it was supported by a small staff headed by an executive secretary with a, quote, passion for anonymity, end quote, and limited to a coordinating role. In subsequent administrations, that passion disappeared, and the staff members took on operational duties that formerly were the function, <clears throat> I'm sorry, were the responsibility of constitutionally conformed cabinet official. This aggrandizement of the staff function then spread into fields far beyond national security. So, more recently, the situation has been worsened by the difficulty of getting presidential nominees to cabinet and subcabinet positions approved and in place. So, essentially, it's gotten so difficult to vet someone's background with the questionnaires and the checks that have to go in, and then the approval... Um, If anything is discovered questionable, if the political affiliations aren't there, then uh, the Senate committee can simply just uh, keep it on indefinite hold. And people actually use confirmation hearings um, as bargaining chips for other legislations. Now, politically, this is a smart move, but as far as it, uh, like running our government is concerned, it really hinders us. When Obama took office, he had um, a host of um, job positions, essentially, that he couldn't get filled because the Republicans will not um, allow them to be confirmed into a position. And it's not just with the recent Obama administration. I mean, this has happened for virtually all um, presidential administrations. And 
it's because of this that we started to see the czar pop up. Um, so the practice of appointing White House czars to rule over various issues or regions is not a new invention. Uh, I'm back on the article here. But centralized management by the White House staff has been greatly increased in years. So the idea is, is you had a committee member who sort of ran uh, the subject that they were dealing with. And then there was a staffer that would come in and sort of just, you know, deal with the day-to-day -day secretarial notions of it. Uh, now, because they can't get people confirmed, they have these um, White House staffers sort of appointed to czar status to run these committees. Um, and the problem is with that is that, one, it's directly under White House control um, and politically White House control. So if you're a Republican in the office, then, you know, it, it's a political bent to that um, to that committee. Um, and people don't like czars because they're not accountable. You can't call a czar um, and hold them under oath. And obviously when it comes to open um, operations and honesty in government, that's a huge liability. And what people nowadays really like to say about it is that um, it's some form of crazy... Uh, uh, I've heard people say socialism, um, um, communism, by having a czar. Uh, communism, I think, is the most most prevalent spouted out about it. But um, so the essence of this article is is talking about how czars became popular because of political difficulties and and politics in general, but how it can also be turned around. So, to return to a more effective and constitutionally sound use of cabinet members and their departments, they could be grouped into important functional categories, national security and foreign policy, economics, natural resources, human resources, etc. Uh, all these subjects involve more than one department. Sometimes the natural convener is obvious, in other instances the leading role might simply rotate. With the help of staff coordinators in the White House, cabinet members might convene by themselves and then with the president. This would in involve all departments and at the same time ensure that a presidential rather than a departmental point of view would prevail. Policy execution would be improved as would support for legislative initiatives. The main goal, the main goal is to assure that a cabinet member, not a White House aide, is always in charge. Uh, then and foremost, the appointment process must be moved back to what it was even as recently as Reagan administration. This assumption is that honorable people want to serve honorably. Reasonable vetting, such as a review of IRS and uh, FBI records, can be done quickly. A bad apple will surely, surely be discovered then and discarded. But to, to continue with the vetting process that we have currently, it's really insane. It drags down and it it just panders to the political process um, or, or the two political parties warring continuously with each other. And it really prevents us from having the best people running these committees and, and making informed, educated decisions that have been dealing with it for years. You know, if we just have an aide that rotates every two years or every year, they're not really going to be up on it as, as, as much as someone who's lived it the past 20 years. He writes, I remember a passage in the late great American statesman Paul Nietzsche's autobiography. A friend in the FDR administration called and asked him to work in government. He would receive no pay, only an extra desk and an assistant. In this wholly illegitimate way, he began his career in federal government. 
Now, his public record <clears throat> service is legendary. He says he's not recommending that in today's vetting process, but if it was like that, would we ever have anyone serve in our government? The idea behind serving in your government, the base notion is that you want to serve your country. But it's really turned into, I want to find a way to make a lot of money. So you become a senator or a congressman. You get paid okay, but what you're really getting paid in are kickbacks from special interest groups to vote their way. Then when you leave, you become a, a, a spokesman for that organization, or you go work internally with that organization, making a lot more money because you helped them so much when you were in office. So it's become a business strategy rather than trying to further one's country or one's people. And this also speaks to the idea of a larger government. The larger um, portion of operations that our federal government takes over, the states, the local states, the more you're going to find situations like we have currently. And that's why it's getting so out of hand, in my opinion, is that um, there's so much more to do on a federal level um, you get more people uh, pushing in and having influence, negative, fueled and backed through uh, money and, and big business, big corporation, that the individuals who put them in office no longer have a say in things. If we cut down on what the, the federal government has control over, if we cut back on the individuals that go there, and if we just simply vet people for um, the basics and just let them run with it, if they do a bad job, fucking fire them. But don't hold up their fucking confirmation hearings indefinitely because you don't like their political views. It's just absurd, and it really holds us back as a country. And, it, you know, I, I saw this, and, and though I don't agree with the politics of George Schultz, uh, I do appreciate what he's saying in this article. And I think, you know, it, it's really a, an interesting way to take things. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the next article. And I saw this, and I had to mention it. It's uh, from The Guardian. It's why more and more women are using pornography. Uh, it was written by Tanith Carey, um, and it appeared 7th of April in 2011. And it doesn't really speak to the title. It doesn't really say why. I mean, it, it mentions in brief because of the Internet. But that's, that's pretty retarded. Because that's assuming that women didn't look at pornography before, or they didn't naturally want to be involved in sex or fetish in a disconnected way before. And I think that's asinine. I think that's insane. Uh, women, admittedly, as a category, uh, are more inclined to be more sensual than sexual. Um, but that doesn't speak to every woman out there. So, obviously, when your population grows and uh, you have the ease of access of pornography like the Internet um, in a very discreet manner that we have it, uh, you're going to have a larger percentage of people admitting to it or experiencing it. And so suddenly, oh, you know what? There's this big rash of women searching porn and enjoying porn. I think it's always been the case. You know, we are fleshly beings. We, we fuck for fun. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And even if it comes down to whatever, you know, I, I talked before briefly about fetishes um, uh, in some previous episodes. So whether or not you have pornography, there have been fetishes that people have, sexual fetishes that people have indulged in. That is who we are on the most primal of levels. Um, you know, we want to 
and, and this actually speaks back to the hierarchy of needs. Procreation is an essential building block of human beings. We absolutely have to have sex so that we can continue to exist as a species. That's the bottom. That's the base of his, his, his little <laughs> pyramid of need there. Uh, so, you know, it, it always strikes me as funny, and, and, which is why I always have to bring it up whenever I see it, when people, you know, they see something like this, like, oh, women are now in mass numbers admitting to enjoying pornography or using pornography. It's not that fucking new, man. It's not new at all. You know, maybe our, our society, our world cultural society has agreed that it's okay to talk about it more. And in this case, I think that's fantastic. Um, actually, in every case, I, I, think, I think talking about things is fantastic. But uh, it's not fucking new. And it is really aggravating, especially because they they throw up a headline like this, which gets me to fucking read it, because I'm controlled by <laughs> my sexual urges, too, and I want to hear about other people who are as well. Uh, and then they don't really address it, other than saying, oh, well, it's because, you know, the Internet's around. Well, that's that's not really addressing your fucking headline, is it, motherfuckers? Uh, they do say some uh, interesting things here uh, near the bottom, and I say that loosely. As porn becomes more pervasive, women are now also using it as a quick way to have sex without emotional investment. Uh, investment? Investment, just as men traditionally have. Quote, for women, just as for men, the internet is able to satisfy that need in a rather raw, crude sense, quickly and easily. Why serenade someone and go through all the courtship rituals with another person when you have Google? End quote. Uh, they do say that, and this is a, a point I think painfully obvious with any activity. If it becomes a habit, that's fine. If it becomes a habit that interferes with your life, then there's a problem. And that's with anything. That's with drinking. That's with any anything you do. I mean, it's really just fucking prescription drugs. You know, if you're taking prescription drugs and suddenly they take over, well, then you become addicted. And you have to mentally decide to stop. <laughs> I used to smoke. Admittedly, I only smoked for seven years, or six years, I think. But it came to a point where it wasn't worth it to me anymore. I didn't identify with the image of the smoker anymore. And I, I realized that I didn't need that to define me. That was sort of the breaking point for me. I fucking stopped. Cold turkey. One day, it was over. Done. My wife did the exact same thing with me. No problems. It's really a fucking decision that you have to make. And I do... If you want to, you know, sort of pull back on the, the physiology side of it, uh, have a very um, addictive family. So smoking and drinking, alcoholism, um, drug abuse. So it's not like I, I'm not genetically predisposed, as they say, to it. But if I can do it with smoking, um, you know, anyone can do it, especially with something like fucking porn addiction. Come on. But you don't have to. That's the good part. Still let it rule your life. All right, so women, though it's nothing new, Enjoy your porn. And I guess that's going to cover it for uh, Infernal Informer. Let's go ahead and move on into uh, Creature Feature. The sky is dark, moon piercing the night. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She is swamp, water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as a last effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature.
Alright, today we're talking about Ceremony 3. That's how I'm going to say it. So I was first introduced to um, this, uh, I'm going to call it um, experiment in sound um, through uh, uh, Letters to the Devil message board, a, a satanic uh, message board run by Magister Venture. Fantastic site. Um, and it was just in one of the announcement um, portions of the website, you know, um, the, the gentleman Slesk let out uh, that he had finished his newest album, and uh, I went and listened to it. Now, I, I have a big affinity for um, dark, ambient, classical music. Um, I have a big affinity for just classical in general, really. Uh, anything, anything that evokes pure emotion, I think, is raw and, and exciting. Um, but also, I like sort of background music that um, pushes the hair up on the back of my neck that I can use through ritual or I can use as um, mood enhancer in an atmosphere. I'm trying to build a sort of uh, environment for people. Um, if I just want to listen to music or read a book while I'm playing a video game, I'm sorry, listen to music while I'm playing a video game or read a book and listen to music, then this is you know this, the type of music that I think would be quite appropriate for virtually everything I read. Um, so once I heard it, I, I had to fucking buy it, and then I bought the other album that was available too. Um, so as I mentioned, Slesk uh, sort of headed up this project, and Sermo 3, as he states, is a, um, well, let's see how he defines it, uh, a series of albums completely dedicated to H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. Um, and uh, it's really great. It's dark, it's moody, and then there's just sort of this, this creep of tone that comes through. Um, it's it's something that I think, I, I, I know I can use in, in a, a vast manner. You know, I can use it in, in a lot of different arenas of, of my life, and uh, I think if you like instrumental music that doesn't sound computerized, um, if you like sort of dark, uh, classical music, this is sort of that tone, and, and I think you would appreciate it. Um, so, uh, let's see, the album that I'm talking about here is Easy Listening for the Great Old Ones, and uh, as he mentioned, it is actually, um, you know, geared toward the Cthulhu Mythos, and if you've ever been a fan of Lovecraft, or if you've ever read any Lovecraft, you know that is, um, I'm not going to get into it now, because that's probably going to be a topic for another show. Um, but I certainly suggest it. You can get it by going to ReverbNation.com, um, search under Sermo3, S-E-R-M-O-I-I-I, and, uh, you know, buy it. Support, support a, a composer, an artist, a true artist, and, uh, uh like I said, I'm gonna have him on the show, and we're gonna talk about his music and see what's coming down the pipe for him. Um, and really, that's all for the Creature Feature. Let's go ahead and move into Bizarre Bizarre, and, uh, Grab this baby up, shall we? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the bazaar of the bazaar. <laughs> bazaar of the bazaar. Um, you know, I've actually had a steady line in the bazaar of the bazaar of like sexual topics, so this is going to be pulling away from that um, quite drastically, actually. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, absurd theories. And, and one of them, which came up immediately because of my trek to Goblin Valley, which a friend commented on, and it sort of 
<laughs> help me remember something uh, that another friend had said. So let me start at the beginning here. When you go to Goblin Valley, as I mentioned before, you see these rock formations that truly look like they could very well be, you know, humanoid shapes, and there's hundreds of them. You know, it's sort of the <laughs> I would like to akin it, or, or liken it to uh, um, the poor man's uh, terracotta warriors uh, in China is what I was thinking of. You know, it's just these rock formations, and they're big enough that you can climb up on them and over them. Some of them look like mushrooms, some of them look like penises. Um, but it's really great because your imagination sort of takes the form that they're in and defines it due to your personality. Um, it's a lot of fun to go to. And it reminded me, thanks to a friend, about this theory that someone had about giants. So there's this idea that giants once roamed the earth, according to my friend. And this is nothing new. I mean, um, biblically speaking, uh, the Nephilim have actually been uh, talked about, and, and there's, you know, they give tales um, of, of giants and stuff. But that's about as credible as Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, it's a story made up, so you can't take it as fact. But that doesn't stop people. So, uh, <laughs> backing up to my friend here, uh, he told me that there were these giant rocks and this is obviously the fucking connection with Goblin Valley, um, where the rocks were actually grave markers for giants. And this is all in southern Utah, um, in Wyoming, and in, in, in Idaho and stuff. And the idea that someone could hear that, and as a rational-thinking human adult say, okay, yep, that's true. <laughs> it's just, like, fucking crazy insane. Um... I mean, there's people that believe there's fucking lizard men living in caves underneath the earth. So, you know, like sentient beings, like alien lizard men, it's just, maybe they watch V too much. But these, these conspiracy theories are completely, completely crazy. What I think is going to be fantastic uh, shortly down the line is when these crazy theories uh, welcome the Bible into their fold when people start seeing those stories as crazy and asinine. I mean, there's a, quite a few of us atheists out there that, that truly see that as the reality, uh, but it, it would be fantastic um, if, if it was just once and for all, just you didn't have idiots really just performing horrendous acts of, of, of disgust and depravity in the name of this, this one uh, book of tales. You know, it's like Mother Goose's nursery rhymes, except it's in verse and it's very boring. <laughs> it's actually not that boring of a book. It's actually kind of action-packed and bloody and you know, very racy and disgusting, but it's all about love, people. <laughs> so that's where, you know, my mind connects in very uh, strange ways, obviously. So, you know, the Goblin Valley reminded me of my, um, the, the giants and the giants reminded me of the Bible and so it goes my mind. <laughs> That's it for another show, people. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed your stay. I'd love to hear from you. Visit the website, 9centspodcast.com. You can always contact me via email there at info at 9centspodcast.com and let me know what you think. If you like what you hear, if you don't like what you hear, um, yeah, I appreciate any feedback I get because it helps me build a better show. I'm going to keep these going, so you'd be doing me a favor. <laughs> you can find me on Facebook. Just search 9 cents, the number 9, S-E-N-S-E. -S -E. And uh, you know what? Um, you can leave your own Bizarre the Bizarre drops there. You can leave 
topic discussions there. If you find an interesting article, you can send it there. If you don't want to email me. Um, and uh, what else? Well, I guess that's all the way all the ways you can contact me. Uh, if you want to find other uh, Satanists, visit Undercroft um, at satannet.com. There's a few uh, really great people there, um, but with any venue, there's going to be a lot of, um, I guess, trolls too. So expect that. You know, like my um, intro to The Devil's Advocate, you know, everyone may be a Satanist, that doesn't mean they speak for the Church of Satan, so just keep that in mind. And with that in mind, visit churchofsatan.com, um, the source of all things um, satanic on the internet. And uh, if you want to hear any other music or creative shows by other Satanists, visit Radio Free Satan. It's certainly worth it. Uh, fantastic internet streaming radio, and then you can download them as well um, and play them at your convenience. Um, so once again, thank you for joining me. I, as always, am your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan.